Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. My guest on Freedom Forum Radio is Bob Levy, the author of The Dirty Dozen, chairman of the Cato Institute, noted authority on the Constitution, and the lawyer who successfully argued the Heller Second Amendment case in front of the Supreme Court. President Trump uh, wanted certain states to reject the, the Biden electors and choose a Trump state instead. It was Trump slate instead. Uh, is that even, well, whether it can happen or not, is that a legal thing? That, and how would that be accomplished? You know, there's, there's some dispute about the legislator, uh, legislature's power to do that, especially because they would not have established that process Prior to the election, they'd be changing the rules after the fact. So I think in this instance, it's highly unlikely that a state legislature could simply reverse the results of the popular vote without some pretty compelling reasons. And bear in mind that the election infirmities that Trump alleged and that a lot of uh, millions of people agree with, uh, they were considered by more than 80 judges and elected election boards and governors and secretary of states. Uh, from both political parties and not a single authority determined that there were extraordinary irregularities, certainly none that would that would overturn the results of the uh, uh, electoral vote. And in fact, even the president's own, own uh, cybersecurity and infrastructure uh, security agency, which is overseen by Department of Health, Homeland uh, Security, released a statement declaring that the November 3rd election was the most secure in history and that there was no evidence that any voting system lost votes or changed votes or was compromised. And then, of course, uh, as we know, even Attorney General Barr, or I guess I should say um, what will soon be former Attorney General Barr, and concluded that he hasn't seen fraud on a scale that would have affected a different outcome in the election. So, yes, it's possible as a, from a legal perspective that the um, a state could uh, choose a different slate. Um, possible. I, I think it's an open question, frankly, uh, but it, it's not going to happen this time around. Every once in a while, you hear of an elector who sort of jumps ship and votes for someone, he, someone else or someone he wants to. I assume, since we're all human beings, that uh, he would probably face some problems back home. But could he actually do that? Yeah, this is the problem of the so-called faithless elector. And in, indeed, it's happened 165 times uh, over the course of our history, but it's never affected the outcome. And currently, there are 33 states in D.C. have laws that require 
good faith. And they have varying remedies for electors who uh, don't honor their uh, commitment. Some states punish the elector, fine the elector, for example. Some states void their vote. Some states substitute a different elector. So this year, the Supreme Court considered all of this in two cases that they consolidated, Chiafalo versus State of Washington and Colorado Department of State versus Baca. And the court ruled nine to zip that each state can punish or replace presidential electors who don't support the winner of the state's popular vote. So they said the state can do that, but bear in mind that the state isn't compelled to do that. And there are 17 states still that have no laws uh, respecting the faithless elector. In those states, presumably, it could still happen without punishment and without the removal of the elector or the replacement of the elector with a different elector. You know, one of the things that we're suffering from at this point is that you, there are so many sources of information. I'm not going to call them news. Uh, some of them are, are, don't qualify. Probably most of them don't qualify. <clears throat> but with the um, Internet and uh, various the media and all that, there are so many different versions of the same facts that it really is difficult uh, to sort out what is true and what is not. Um, so you mentioned that when it comes down to the integrity of this election, uh, if you listen to a lot of the media, or let's put it the conservative leaning media or internet sites that run by conservative individuals, uh, there is a huge amount of evidence of Voter of voter fraud, of lack of integrity of this election, uh, all along the line. So how how does one go about real? You know, and then you say, well, the courts have said they haven't found evidence. Well, you know, on one side you hear people saying there was definitely voter fraud enough to affect the outcome and show you videos of this and and facts of this and facts. Then. Then you go to court and the court says there's no evidence. How does how does that happen? I mean, well, I think and that's courts, one of the things that's really just that's really dividing everyone now and making it very difficult to for people to reach any kind of a logical conclusion. Yeah, the, the courts, um, they haven't determined that there's no evidence because there's no election, no presidential election in our history uh, that has been completely free of fraud. So the question is the quantum of fraud and the quantum of evidence. And, and of course, we know that the Supreme Court would like nothing more than not to be involved <laughs> in this whole uh, electoral process. Uh, the uh, justices of the Supreme Court want to preserve the institutional respectability of the court. And the last thing they want is for the court to be perceived as a political institution. So this evidence, or at least what some people, the plaintiffs have believed to be evidence, have presented to these courts. And as I said, more than 80 judges have considered the evidence. And a lot of those judges, I think uh, almost half of them, 30 some, were uh, Republican appointed judges. And they, as well as the election boards and the governors, uh, have not concluded. Um, they haven't dismissed the possibility that there was fraud, but they haven't concluded uh, 
that there was evidence of sufficient fraud uh, that would change the outcome of the 306 to 232 electoral vote. Now, for better or worse, uh, the courts are the courts are the last word on this uh, matter, uh, unless again there is a challenge in Congress, which could happen, but as we've just discussed, I think very unlikely to happen in this case. If there is a challenge in Congress, what is it? But what can it be based on? Well, it would be the allegation that there's fraud, and uh, as I mentioned, all it takes to mount a challenge is one representative and one senator. You have to have one from each chamber. We already have one congressman who said, I think it's a man, I'm not sure about that, but one, certainly one representative uh, who has said that he or she is going to uh, attempt to mount a challenge. We haven't had any senator who has stepped up to the plate and McConnell is trying to avoid that problem. So I doubt that there's going to be a challenge. But again, even if there is one, uh, it couldn't possibly, I think, uh, conceivably affect enough states and be upheld so that this electoral outcome would be altered. And that's the final step. There's nothing beyond that uh, that could occur. The courts have spoken. And if Congress speaks... We're talking, of course, with Bob Levy, uh, constitutional scholar, author of The Dirty Dozen, chairman of the Cato Institute, a noted authority on the Constitution. Um, He's been a guest on Freedom Forum uh, many times in the past, and it's always good to listen to uh, your your ideas and your opinions because they are based on, on not only history, but they're based upon uh, an enormous amount of knowledge. So let's talk about one of the key aspects of of our constitution and our form of government is that it is a constitutional republic and not a democracy. And that's where we have this talking about the debate about the electoral college versus popular voting. Uh, And so we could ask, why shouldn't the outcome of a national election be determined by a national majority vote? Well, you, Dr. Dan, in your opening remarks, you said it better than I could say it. Uh, I think you made it quite clear that we are a constitutional republic. So it's true that in the U.S., uh, majorities rule. Generally, there are limits. For example, uh, the Constitution sets out certain unalienable rights, like free speech, that majorities can't take away. The founders instituted a plan whereby, in a limited number of areas, majorities are entitled to rule. Why? Because they're authorized by the Constitution. Limited areas. So we don't take a vote to determine if you're allowed to exercise your religious beliefs. And the federal government can't compel California, for example, to criminalize marijuana, even if a supermajority of Americans across the country want marijuana to be criminalized. So this is um, something other than majority rule. And the Electoral College is one more exception to the general rule that majorities govern. The Electoral College is, as you properly point out, set forth in the Constitution. And it was designed, at least in part, to buttress this notion of federalism, which is dual sovereignty, power divided between the federal and state governments so as to check them from violating the rights of individuals. 
And the Constitution, again, as you eloquently stated, would not have been ratified if the least populous states and their voters had not been protected against dominance by the most popular states. And that dynamic has not changed over the years. You know, the Bill of Rights, to me, is of all of our, we have three founding documents, of course, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And and obviously, the Declaration of Independence proposes a, a, a belief system, a philosophy system of freedom uh, that it announces to the world that we want to achieve. And the, the Constitution itself, I look at as the operating manual for the federal government, pretty much. But the Bill of Rights is what defines the relationship of government to the people, to each individual citizen, because you know there have been, obviously, uh, many court cases throughout the years that have empowered citizens as well as states under the Bill of Rights. So we're now facing the possibility of a of a federal government that might try to eliminate and modify the Bill of Rights so where we're really not at all even close to being as free as we are now. Uh, that's a real, a real possibility and a real fear for, for many of us. How, how do you see that as being, how likely do you see that? Well, I uh, have uh, faith in the American people. And uh, even though we are very highly polarized at the moment, I do think we have checks and balances that will prevent what you've just described from happening. Uh, those checks and balances are uh, ma manifold, but the two most important are the division of power between the three branches of government. So we have the legislature, the executive, and I think most important, the judiciary checking uh, each other. And the judiciary's function is to make sure that the legislative and executive uh, branches are bound by the chains of the Constitution. And I think the judiciary does a good job of that. The second uh, check and balance is, of course, federalism. And that is this division of power between state and federal governments to protect individual rights. This is not a matter of states' rights. It's a matter of divided power between state and federal, the purpose of which is not to give the states rights, but to protect each individual from abuse of power by either the federal government on the one hand or the states on the other. Can we look at several different things in the Bill of Rights that uh, concern me? For instance, the freedom of speech, obviously, that's that's critically important to be able to speak your mind. Uh, you know, you you may not like what you hear, and of course, you have the choice whether to listen or not. But certainly, in the last decade, we've seen what I think would be a, an enormous encroachment on freedom of speech. I think the whole concept of hate speech. I don't see how that is in any way constitutional safe zones on college campuses and things like that. Um, I look at that, and I want your opinion on how you look at that, but I look at that more in a libertarian sense, that 
you can say whatever you want. If someone doesn't like it, uh, they don't have to listen, or they can argue with you, or they can ignore you, or whatever they want, but you still have the right to say it. And then if what you say causes true harm, then there are legal remedies, uh, either through um, criminal penalties in some cases or civil penalties if you go to court. Uh, So how do you see that whole issue? There have been many abuses of power by majorities, Um, abuses in the sense that they have uh, compromised the Bill of Rights and compromised other uh, provisions of the Constitution. And the framers understood that if you have pure democracy, that is unconstrained Uh, rule by majorities, that can lead to the suppression of minority rights. And we've had temporal majorities in the United States have done things such as shut down speakers on our campuses. Uh, They've prevented uh, homeowners in cities from defending themselves with a handgun. Uh, They force, um, and this is relatively recent, force religious business owners to provide birth control to their employees whether the business owner wants to do so or has religious objections to doing so. They've granted racial preferences in college admissions. They monitor every phone call in the country. In some cases, they destroy homes in order to provide land uh, for private developers. Uh, They've they've confiscated innocent persons' property, like automobiles, because it allegedly facilitated commission of a crime. They incarcerate um, minor drug offenders uh, for decades. Uh, they bar you know, Uber drivers from offering superior taxi service to protect the existing uh, taxi industry. And let's not forget on a much grander scale, slavery, uh, Jim Crow laws, uh, internment camps for Japanese Americans, uh, military responses to what turned out to be imagined crises, uh, many imperial wars in the name of exporting democracy. Those policies, unless and until they were checked, by the courts primarily, were supported by popular majorities. So majority rule is something that, uh, while it is the general rule, uh, we have to protect ourselves against a tyranny of the majority. And fortunately, the Electoral College was one, albeit I think insufficient way, uh, by which the framers intended to to curb uh, majority rule. You certainly, by what you just said, uh, it really, begs for me to again say that you are the author of an incredible book called The Dirty Dozen, The Twelve Worst Supreme Court Decisions of All Time, Uh, decisions that expanded uh, the power of government versus the rights of the individual. And of course, case number one being the Dred Scott decision and goes along and, and you discuss a lot of the laws, rules, regulations of FDR during the New Deal and things like that, which are blatantly unconstitutional, many of which we're still suffering with, with today. And, and I would propose that that you probably have more than enough uh, fodder or information to write a sequel to the second Dirty Dozen since the first one was uh, completed, because a lot of the cases that we uh, hear about now are so it just boggles your mind to the, how could justices in a court system make decisions like that when they have the written words of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights as their guide? How does that happen? And, and what do we do to, to protect ourselves? Well, what we do is we elect uh, 
president and the senators who will nominate and confirm judges who respect the text of the Constitution, who treat uh, the document as if its words mean something and not as if the Constitution is simply a loophole that we can throw away and act as though the text didn't exist. And I, I will say this, that despite having misgivings about some aspects of the Trump administration. Uh, the one area where I think they have done a superb job is in the nomination and confirmation uh, of federal judges. Uh, they've uh, nominated excellent federal judges across the board. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. 